This is a podcast for Functional Ecology, a British Ecological Society publication. Hello, I'm Emma Sayer, the Reviews Editor for Functional Ecology, and our podcast this afternoon is with um, Elizabeth Forbes from um, the University of California, Santa Barbara, who's just published a review paper in Functional Ecology called Synthesising the Effects of Large Wild Herbivore Exclusion on Ecosystem Function. Hello, Elizabeth. Hi, nice to be here. You're doing your PhD in a long-term herbivore exclusion experiment in Africa, uh, comparing carbon cycling with and without large herbivores. Yes, I am. Yeah, it it sounds pretty exciting. What's what's the most interesting thing that's happened to you or the the most interesting thing you've seen during field work? Working, you know, it, it's important to acknowledge that working in, in Kenya where I do my work is privileges of my life and, and the people that at the field station where I do my research center are just incredible scientists, but also being far away from home for several months at a time, you know, a, a joy and, and not as hard. So, in broad strokes, the most interesting thing for me has been the chance to uh, in Kenya. And in terms of the most interesting things I've seen in field, or this is going to be such like a duh kind of answer, but, um, you know, I get to do my field work in a country where there's large wild, as opposed to most other places in the world, you know, Kenya is famous for, so, um, you know, if I ever don't get excited to see an elephant on the drive up to our field site, that's time to do like a mental check on myself. <laughs> um, I try to always stay super, super um, curious and excited about all these animals because it's a, you know, uh, for, for someone from, you know, Massachusetts and now California, being able to see these animals as close as one can safely get um, and personal is, um, is, is pretty incredible. Um, this past year, I and my colleagues got to four lions. So this was something I'd seen before. I'd seen lions before, but um, this was two mom and male cubs, and I'd never seen almost male lions before. So they don't have any mom. So they're, they're teens, basically. They're a little bit smaller than their mom. I'd, these sort of leopard-like spots on hind legs, which I Googled later, um, and Google tells me that they eventually grow out of that actual lion research. Feel free to correct me. Um, so they really kind of looked like these weird leopard hybrids, and they were gorgeous. Um, they were also extremely irritated that we were driving past them because they were obviously now lunch, which the evidence of that lunch was also kind of cool. But um, yeah, so that was an interesting thing this past year. Uh, another thing... That is funny about working somewhere with primates, which I had never worked before my starting my PhD, is that you get emails I got from a colleague this morning, which read something along the lines of, we checked on the sensors again, yes, and a baboon had clearly tried to pull it out of the ground and also to disconnect it. So that was kind of a funny way to start coffee was reading that email. So, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Great. It, it does. I mean, it sounds fascinating. And I, yeah, I would get very, very excited to see an elephant. <laughs> And I, I, I can imagine that you don't ever really get over that um, during field work. No, and I hope I never do. <laughs> so I guess on the on the subject of, of elephants, I really enjoyed reading your paper, and I was, I was quite fascinated by some aspects of these experimental studies because you know I don't work with large mammals, I don't work with mammals, and I can't, I can't really imagine what it takes to exclude elephants, for example. Um, so you, you talked about studies that have excluded elephants and other very large 
herbivores. So how how do you do yeah, that? Yeah, so that's a really, really good question. And I, uh, so I guess it, the, the shortest answer is that it takes some pretty aggressive electric thing um, and, uh, you know, some, a lot of uh, patience and time structure. So, um, so I started my PhD working in large scale elephant on down herbivore exposure experiments. So my personal impression when I started my was that this is just what exposure experiments look like. <laughs> um, that it became very clear to me as I was, you know, running through papers for this review that that was not the case at all, and that this experiment is um, really um, just a, a fabulous place in research. It was started about 25 years ago by a doctor from UC Davis. Uh, uh, you know, I consider a personal mentor. I've just been thinking about this system and the effect for a really long time. Just knows it backwards, and um, so what. He and the scientists whose experiment Updo uh, did was use different kinds, so different sort of um, uh, setups of electric fencing classes of animal, right? So the fully enclosed plots have traditional looking fences, giant posts that are, you know, um, and there's horizontal strings of this post and everything is about three or four. And you have to get into that fencing you see from a padlock that keeps a door closed. Um, and from there, you can sort of wander around. But um, the plots that allow in smaller herbivores like ambas or zebras, um, but that keep out the, the giraffes and the elephants have uh, something more like a willing string of electric wire. So one piece of electric wire that runs along the topmost posts and then has these sort of dangling strings that would deter an animal like an elephant, but that a zebra could just walk. Um, so so it took a lot of, I think, um, obviously was not there for the setup of this experiment, but to a lot of ingenuity and creativity to come up with a design of selectively um, exclude different size classes. Um, and they're huge. Are there many studies that cover a, an area sort of that large? No. So, so that was another thing that I found um, when, or that we found when we were, you know, looking through the literature and trying to synthesize the, all of these different experiments is that by and large, most of them, you know, about 20, 25 meters by 20 or 25 meters. Um, the, these plots that I work in are 200, 200 meters, which I always, I'm a track nerd. I ran track in school in college. And so the way that I think about it is sort of the flat end of a track, two of those stacked against each other plots. And there's, you know, three different replicates of this experiment. You're, you're talking about multiple square mile stretches and we literally need to drive from the plot to, to be able to get to them. So, you know, there's there's a few experiments that are a lot larger, but I've noticed uh, that these tend to be infrastructure like pastoralism or, or, or conversely one giant exclosure inside of which a bunch of observational sciences are done. Um, but for the most part, most herbivore, you know, replicated herbivore exclosure are smaller on the scales of you know, kind of 10. Um, we purposely explained study that had an exercise of less than five, five, just because at that point, your lance or other much more thick processes, but even so the vast majority of exposures. Um, so, you know, it's hard to study more lens effects or the exposures of that time because those, you know, these processes like really spatially heterogeneous. And I guess you're also, you also demonstrate quite a large number of knowledge gaps because we simply don't have the the data to answer um, a lot of questions at the moment. And one thing I really did wonder is how much we can infer from studies of domesticated herbivores, because your review focuses very much on wild animals. Um, but of course, there's there's there are quite a lot of grazing exclusion studies with um, with uh, sheep and cattle, for example. So do we do we know much about the differences between wild and domesticated herbivores, and can we can we perhaps use 
um, studies of domesticated animals to to formulate your research questions about wild herbivores? Yeah, I'm really, really glad you asked that, actually, because it's a, it's a particular interest in my, um, in my dissertation. Something that um, is really important is to consider, you know, um, wildlife loss doesn't happen in a vacuum, right? So, so there's these processes that are occurring that cause wildlife loss and things like land, land use change. Frequently, land use change is occurring because of something like pastoralism or agro what you frequently see is either mixed use ecosystems or wild herbivores and domestic ones sharing a space and using the same resources, or very often is the spatial replacement of wild herbivores with. Um, so, so, you know, it's just at a certain point, not realistic to study wildlife loss if you're not also spatial, spatial replacement with domestic, um, or at least that's my, that's, um, and, and relatively few of the experiments. So, so, as you know, we sort of made wild uh, herbivores, um, and it, it was really interesting going through all these exposure experiments because so many of them were focusing on sort of the combined effects of species in wild, or were looking at species only. Um, again, because there's a lot of ecosystems where they're the most large herbivore in this, um, and it was sort of a, a bummer to <laughs> to exclude those because um, it's really interesting. But um, one of the biggest differences, with which we noted um, in our review, is that even if you have domestic species might cause the same functional system, um, that equivalence is almost moot because we're higher density than native and wild herbivores. You know, you might get an elephant kind of wandering through your 200 by once a day, but if cattle are grazing in that, um, that, that impact is there because there's just so many of them. So the biggest impacts of domestic herbivores, are, which makes them sort of inherently functionally different from the native herbivores just on a numbers level. Um, you know, it's in that sense, it's it's really difficult to compare the effects of it, um, just based purely on their incomparable. But but I'm really interested in impacts and direction to native herbivores just isn't a whole lot of research on to control the numbers in a way that I think you know um, in experiments and also maybe you know makes sense, right? If if all domestic herbivores are these then then wild ones exist, then, um, maybe that's what we should be if that makes sense. <laughs> No, no, it's a it's a good point. So, I mean, you've you've talked an awful lot about um, the design of these experiments, and so I was wondering what your ideal exposure experiment would look like, and which in which system and which animals would you most like to study. I mean, are you are you already in your ideal exposure experiment, or or is there something else you think you think? We yeah, should be doing? I mean, so in a lot of ways, yes, I am already in what I would consider an ideal. Experiment landscape or, or arguably landscape scale size or landscape scale uh, effects of herbivore disclosure. Um, it's got this domesticated cattle treatment incorporated in native animals. Um, and it's been running for 25 years, uh, which is much longer than, than most, most extend, um, and has demonstrated sort of variable effects over time. Um, but I think what I'd, in the future, what I'd love to focus on is the gap that currently exists, um, herbivores in, in forests and particularly tropical doubted us when we were reviewing the literature is that most of these studies occur in temperate grasslands logistically makes a lot of sense. You know, it's really, uh, if you think about trying to set up electric fencing of the scale that exists in the Arkin at Impala, um, you know, I'm trying to I'm trying to imagine seeing electric fencing through like a really dense understory. How many shortages you would experience, and whether fencing would even be possible. And then what's your alternative? Maybe we do something else. So so the the logistical design would have to forest ecosystem. But um, you know, there's these incredible animals and 
I guess you've also got um, arboreal herbivores. Are you yeah. thinking about your baboons? Yeah, right. Um, you know, how, how on earth do you go about excluding <laughs> exactly. primates? You know, in, in tropical Australia, you know, you've got all these marsupials that, that rely on, on living in, the, you know, some of them never come down <laughs> from the tree canopy. So how do you deal with that when, when they can just go over your exposure? Um, you know, so logistically, there's... Um, there's challenges to working for existing grasslands, which I think account up. Um, but there's really, like like you say, there's these arboreal herbivores. Um, you know, I'm thinking of tree kangaroos in Australia or uh, uh, forest elephants in Central Africa, which we know so little about. But, um, you know, a recent report, I think I think that came out last month, um, estimated that if, if uh, forest elephants in Central Africa go extinct, we could lose... Um, you know, 3 billion tons of clustered carbon just due to resulting shift in tree forests. And, and which is, I think what they estimated, I think it was 40 billion US dollars of, of carbon. Like if, if you want to think about it in, in a monetary con, that's just, that's like a huge functional disease that can't be ignored. And it goes to demonstrate how influential herbivores are in terms, in terms of these functions. Um, and, and we just know so little about them in this, you know? Yeah, that's yeah, it's a really good point. So, yeah, I guess I guess sort of to conclude, I mean, there's obviously we've you've talked a lot about um sort of the barriers to um to establishing these studies. Um so there's obviously this the necessary space and then um how long you'd need to run the exclosures and the particular challenges of doing them in different systems. Um but you also in in your review paper um you conclude with with sort of a call to establish a network of studies. I was wondering what what sort of insights you've gained about these types of experiments from your own fieldwork that that could help you um establish this network yeah yeah that's a a really good question we think we've already touched on um just logistically how uh how much work is involved in or, you know, single exposure experiment of the size that we're proposing a, a network. Um, we took inspiration a couple existing network and nutrient network, which is series of exposures that are looking, you know, specifically at, at nutrient cycling and between herbivory and, and nutrient cycling, but um, but sort of on a bigger scale and thinking also too of things like the the National Science Medical Research Site uh, setup, you know, where where it specifically is supporting long term research. You know, it's 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 difficult. In, the environmental sciences, as I think a lot of us have encountered, um, the, there's disproportionate thing to different sciences and the environmental sciences often um, the kind of long-term funding that a project like that would. Um, and uh, I think, you know, so that so that's one thing to think about is, okay, how, how could we muster <laughs> the kind of um, collaborative funding that, that this sort of net would require? You know, other groups have successfully done that to our system, but, you know, it, w- it would require putting heads together with uh, a lot of people who are also in um, and I think one thing, and, you know, to your question of what have I learned from my own fieldwork that has influenced my thoughts, um, you really need a, either people who can make measurements or creativity and technology that can, that can help you take from large scale measurements that they, um, I, I, I measure one of the things I look at in the Kenya long-term exposure experiment is, um, so I'm running around the Savannah with a portable carbon sensor and I'm sensor. And there's only so much like literal space that I can cover. Um, you know, I'm really constrained to by how much area I can I can run around to that, um, which leaves a lot of gaps uh, in your in your data set. And so what we ended up needing to do, I, you know, I, I ended up collaborating with a bunch of scientists and geographers to to design and build these like 
sensors that I could put out in the field and I could spread them over a larger area than I, you know, and it, it, it requires, you know, utilizing either being able to, you know, have a ton of people with a ton of sensors or, or utilizing technology in the way that our group did, because otherwise you just can't that much ground. <laughs> so, so you need to kind of come up with these like creative ways to, um, a super person, I guess, <laughs> um, and, and, and literally kind of, you know, um, overcome the, the constraints of your own two, le- two legs. <laughs> Great. I, you've given us a lot of food for thought and it's really nice to hear um, a bit more sort of the, the background about this, this review paper. So thank you very much. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. Thank you.